Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Mushing Alaska podcast. Uh, this is your hosts, Brendan and Sean Underwood, and we are super excited for this next episode. Um, you know, we're doing this while the Iditarod's going on, and it's just, uh, just lots going on in our world. Just want to give you a quick reminder, if you're not following us already, uh, Alaska, or mushing.alaska.podcast is our page on Instagram. We have a Mushing Alaska page on YouTube as well. We've been putting out videos for the Iditarod. Please check us out. Follow us. Subscribe to us. That way you're not missing out. We're literally trying to do at least one or two videos every single day. And, uh, well, I don't want to take too much because I'm excited that we have this guest on. So I'm going to actually turn it over to Sean so he can kind of give a proper welcoming to our guest. Yeah, well, uh, well welcome Sebastian Schnull. I Sorry if I don't pronounce your name perfectly. Um, but this is this guy's like the ultimate ambassador of mushing. Uh, he's been in the Iditarod seven times. Let's see how I do, Sebastian. Seven times. They got 2005 through 2011. Uh, he finished in the second, sixth, seventh, tenth, and then another finished every race he participated in. He got 1999 Yukon Quest. Uh, he ran it. We got 2004, five, six, seven. Um, he ran the Yukon Quest, and then in 2009 won it, uh, and then came second place in 2011. So this guy, you know, he's had a an incredible uh, mushing career. Maybe he'll come out of retirement. I don't know. But thanks for oh, coming hey, and hanging out with us. <laughs> Welcome, I'm, man. Yeah, I'm definitely not coming out of retirement. <laughs> ah. I'm, feeling, I'm feeling even more retired um, now being on this side of the game and not being out on the trail. Because it, uh, it kind of was a progression from mushing to online to reporting on the snow machine to then getting an even cushier job being a race judge, being flown around. And now, a few years later, here I am, sitting at home. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I want to look at this year's Iditarod, and I know that I'm willing. I got a tiny bit of a hunch you've been following the race. Um, and right now is, is uh, you know, people are making those decisions about where to take their 24-hour rest. You've had a really warm day yes, yesterday uh, and night, I think, as well. You know, so it's, it's um, just warmer temps and uh, difficult decisions and everyone has their plan that's probably not going well as far as their plan and uh like, you know what are you seeing in the uh front of the pack here you know you got um looks like uh, can, do you have it pulled up at all or is on your uh, laptop? Right now. I'm, I'm, i was gonna say I'm i can pull up. it up too for you if yeah, you guys so want i'm looking up i'm looking at the tracker here and stuff so actually so what i did before this let, let, let's start let's start in Gent now Let's actually start off of where this race started off and, and went. What I found really striking this year, not a single drop dog in Yentner. You know, hmm. only one team staying in Yentner. And um, that was Wade Maas. Everybody else yep. going through Yentner. And he only stayed two hours and five minutes. So the race kind of set, set the tone right there with people being a, with what Brent did, you know, it's always whatever somebody does as a winning strategy, you know, back in my days, it was like skipping Shaktulik or skipping uh, Elim. Those are the new moves. Whenever somebody does something different, new, that's what people pick up on. So I found it very interesting that already in Yentna, only one team stayed in a checkpoint. In Skrentna, same thing, only 11 teams, a third of the field stayed in Skrentna. 
makes it really easy for the uh, checkpoint personnel, you know, not mm -hmm. much to make. You know, um, there was four drop dogs in Squentner, you know, so pretty interesting, really fast run times, like Ryan Reddington, 2.56, Jentner to Squentner. I mean, pretty dang fast. Damn. But the tone was already set that um, Finger Lake, 12 teams stopped, a third of the field, once again. Strangely enough, then in Rainy Pass, the noisiest of all of the checkpoints, 20 teams stopped. Hmm. So that had something to do with the heat of the day, people not wanting to run into the heat of the day. And when you look at teams like Ryan Reddington, getting in there at 9.33 in the morning, that's not the best of time of day to get in there because that basically forces you to leave in the heat of the day. And then when you look what happened to Ryan now, same thing. Now here, Nikolai, he was faced with the same decision. He gets in there very early in the morning. So once you get off schedule, so to speak, that's a dangerous route to go down. Back in my day when I raced, I honestly didn't really care much about checkpoints neither. All I care for, especially in years like this, where it's warm, is daytime. I would purely not run past noon and probably not leave before 4.30 or 5. So now when you look at the teams doing that and look at their dog numbers, you know, look, look at um, Jesse Holmes, um, look at... Uh, Dan Caduce, um, and look at the teams who haven't run quite as optimal as a daytime schedule as they could have run, you know, even Brent to a certain extent yeah. this year, they, you know, Miller Porcelt, you know, Miller was really humming and hawing about what to do in Nikolai, should, should, should I go, should I not? She had a game plan, but she also realized that the time of the day she was on was anything but optimal. So when you look at that a Dan Caduce on paper is four and a half hours behind Ryan Reddington leaving Nikolai, I do think he's in a much better position um, because his daytime hour running is much more favorable and that way, he's also driving a larger team. You know, Nick Petit is another one. He gets at 7 o'clock in the morning into Nikolai, and then he goes like, oh, now what? Oh, I guess I'm taking my 24. <laughs> Doing his taking his 24 is not going to do him any damn good, because then he's going to leave at 8 o'clock in the morning again. So he's running straight back into the heat of the day, and if you look at the forecast for tomorrow, it's even warmer there. Today, yeah. they, they, they got up to freezing. Tomorrow, they're getting up to like 38. So personally, I've always been a real big fan of running by daytime, avoiding the dead of night, like trying not to do runs, you know, 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., but mainly staying out of the heat of the day. And that's going to be interesting to see now what will the effect be? It's not that bad to run into the heat of the day before you're 24 because your dogs 
do get the 24 to rejuvenate a bit, it's really bad to run into the heat of the day out of your 24 or after your 24, because once your team loses their speed, then then they have a then they, you probably won't regain it. You know, so you know when when I when I look when I look at the numbers here and probably from team from 11th place on, you know, Hunter Keith leaving Nikolai at, at almost four o'clock. Personally, that's where I would have wanted to be. I personally wouldn't have worried that much about the ones being ahead of me. That being said, by heat of the day, Brent and Jesse Holmes are also on a perfect schedule now. They ran till the heat of the day, and then they shut it down. And that distance they have, which is quite a bit, I, I don't know the exact mileage, but for Jesse, that's at least 20 plus miles he has on the teams which left Nikolai at four o'clock. That's a nice little gap to have at this stage in the game. You know, so personally, I see Brent and Jesse, you know, are truly fully ahead of their chase pack. How much damage the other ones did, time will tell. I want to follow up when you talk, start bringing up the point of the dogs. And by the way, Sebastian, killer, killer. Holy shit. I'm just like, (laughs) there's so many things I want to say about your, your analysis there. Um, But the only person that has 11 dogs right now is Brent Sass. And that's really is an interesting point that you bring up. Um, And Miller. And Miller. And Miller. Okay. Okay. I didn't, I didn't see that. Um, that's just, I don't know. Is that a little bit concerning to only have 11 dogs left at, at this earlier junction in the race? Still, like, barely even a third of the way in. Well, I don't know what's going on in his team. I saw his interview where he talks about why he dropped those dogs. Are the other 11 completely solid? Are they not? You know, I don't know. Um, it's not going to help if you have somebody breathing down your neck, like Dan Caduce with 14, those extra three dogs are feelable. As Brent talked about in his interview, it's one thing to have 11 dogs pulling and have another dog in the bag. So if he now gets another dog in the bag at some point on a hilly run, let's say over to to, to, to Schagel, uh, over to Aditarod, you know, it's, if they're all healthy, if he doesn't load any, it actually makes life easier. A little bit of less food, you know, 12 woodies less to put on. It, you're, you're a little more efficient. 11 is a very nice number. I I loved driving between 10 and 12. You know, that was my favorite dog number, but not necessarily leaving Nikolai. <laughs> you know, so this probably weighs on Brent and he's not used well, he used to drop a lot of dogs. I mean, he used to be down to very small teams, but not lately. Lately, he, you know, he has gotten used to keeping it together and driving larger teams. So this will be feelable. Um, same with Miller. You know, she drove a relatively small team here in the in the in the uh, Quest 450 with nine dogs, but Michelle was out of reach for her in that. So again, personally, I without seeing the teams and knowing are there little issues and risks or whatever, 
personally, I would prefer to drive either Pete Kaiser's team or um, drive Dan Caduce's team, you know, just looking at the pure dark numbers, not actually seeing the darks in front of me. Kelly Mixner looks really nice too. Yeah, yeah. man, the, the uh, Pete Kaiser was, seemed like he had a little extra speed uh, out on the trail between Nikolai and McGrath. And it's been interesting watching the speeds. Like there's, you know, trying, from what I recall, the trail from, I mean, Nikolai McGrath's like fairly flat, but, it, you know, I've, I, I remember the year I ran, all the front runners had a bunch of overflow. And then, you know, because my part of my strategy was to hang back in the but, but last third of the race. It's a pretty strong strategy, some may say, right, Sebastian? But the uh, the trail set up nicely, and it froze, and it was fast. But, like, it's, I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure there's some variables in the trail conditions, the heat of the day. But you've seen, you know, a lot of these teams being able to hold over eight miles an hour, like, through the heat of the afternoon, which is kind of was pretty impressive. Um, and, yeah, you see this, like, a two miles an hour but kind of difference between some of the higher speeds and some of the lower speeds going on there. And that's kind of interesting to, i'll be interested to see like those run times but but holding the speed is one thing but what does it do to your team even brent talking about one of his young dogs overheating and that's why he had to drop it right so it's not necessarily a good thing to keep your speed up high in the heat of the day um it's one thing what they can do but it's another thing what it will do to them down the line. Also, big difference. Do you have very furry, hairy dogs like Miller does? Or do you have a, a more leaner, short-coated dog? You know, color plays a, plays a role there too. I mean, this was sunny, you know. So if you have a whole black team, we used to carry those white windbreakers for these conditions. Time will tell what this all does to the team. I mean, basically they're a quarter into the race right now with 260 mile mark and Nikolai, you know. So there's so much trail and variation still to come. Being out front, you know, if you're too close to the trail breakers, that's not good neither. Then looking at where the trail breakers are though, they're nicely well ahead on the way to Aditarod. So that trail should have set up nicely for them, you know. I, I cannot see Brent go past over with the fact that he's down to 11. You know, I wonder what, 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 what Jesse will do, you know, um, somebody got to always be, be out front, which is fine to be as long as you have a good trail to deep, to deal with. But I remember myself, I think actually in 08, I came into um, Takotna, I think in third place and Mark Nordman comes up to me and says, Sebastian, what's your plan? I was like, oh, I'm just going to stay very short and then I'm going. He, he was like, yeah, you might want to think about that just to let you know the trail hour, trail breakers left two hours ago. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm doing so, my 24 here in Jakarta. Why you know, is that a deal breaker? Well, if the trail, so at the time it was snowing hard. And if the trail breakers are that close to you, the trail has no time to set up. So I would have been driving through ankle deep snow. There, when I give it 24 and I have somebody else going to Ofa or hopefully beyond that, well, they packed it down. So at the time, I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm staying in, I'm, I'm staying in Takotna, although I hadn't even planned on it. This year, that seems to be all less of a factor because it's not snowing. Um, you know, to my knowledge, there hasn't been 
best snow over the last couple of days. The trail breakers are nicely ahead. So they all should have a pretty decent trail going to Anitarod, which can be really, really low snow and, and very mobile. And it is kind of dependent on it cooling down, which it will you know, eventually cool down as according to the forecast. But like, you know, the trail could, isn't, I mean, the trail front too, I did ride the one year I got to do it. It was pretty fast actually, but it's like not a very highly trafficked trail, but you know, of course there's been the trail breakers and the iron dog and there's, there's been traffic on it, but yeah, you know, tomorrow is the not... warm day. You know, tomorrow is a warm day. So in my opinion, taking an early 24 would really help teams because the dogs and also can rest in a warm day. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they're calling for 38 degrees tomorrow, if you get a good parking spot in Takatna on the hill where they can sleep in the sun or even in Ofa, you know, where staying in your 24 and Ofa in those temperatures is not a big deal. It's one thing to stay in Ofa at 50 below and having to melt snow, but in in those conditions, again, personally, I I would lead to stopping rather earlier and then letting this warmer day pass by. That being said, how much of a weather forecast do these mussers see? You know, do they even know that tomorrow is the last really warmest day and then it's started to cool down? Um, you know, personally looking at that, it, it would be, I think it would make a diff big difference um, to rest the team in the in, in the warmer temperature tomorrow. Yeah, the uh, it's I, I was keeping an eye on like like you you said you know Sass and and Holmes you know they got a decent lead and cushion to work with um and but like on a with as aggressive of a of a race as this has started to be as you pointed out like with kind of some pretty bold starts across the board it'd be I'm kind of interested to see if like you know, you're going to see some of these I mean Dan Caduce is like in what like 12th place or something and like you could I mean it sounds like he 13th place right now and it sounds like he's about as much of a top five favorite at in 13th place as it stands right now as any of the guys in the top five are and like looking at like Wade Mars has taken it super conservatively and now he's 15th. short runs short runs short rest he was like near the last place almost earlier this morning you know I'm I'm kind of excited I I personally am like just such a fan of like mushers doing like the sneaky like we're back here and we're doing our thing and no one's paying attention to us and then like you blink and all of a sudden you're like holy shit they're in fourth place you know like who do you think from like the back of the pack you think like Dan Caduce and maybe Wade Mars or maybe you know like Hunter Keefe I mean he's been like I'm really impressed with his whole mushing season in general. I mean, what do you think about oh, like some of those guys in between fifth and 15th place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hunter, Eddie Burke, considering they're rookies, they're running incredibly well. I mean, they run very structured races. Um, I mean, they're running top of the pack races being rookies. You know, I mean, they're right within the mix right there, which obviously running under Aaron and Ramey, they have that knowledge advantage, which somebody, you know, who doesn't have that type of mentorship doesn't have, but you still have to pull it off. So they're doing extremely well. That being said, when it comes to like winning 
there very likely will be situations coming down the trail where their experience level won't allow them to, to run like a winning strategy. But, you know, will they be able to maybe maintain a top 10? I think so. Dan Caduce, I don't think he is hungry enough. For Dan, I think it's he, to him, it's really important to have a super well looking team. But I personally don't see him as this go getter hardcore racer. He's a super nice guy, super good dog musher. But I don't see him being the grinding it out type of person who's like, "Ah, I need to stay up front and I want to catch up to these front runners. Maybe I misjudge him, um, but I don't see that. That being said, when I look at other mushers, even when I watch their pre-race interviews a little bit, somebody like Matt Fahler seems to have a little more grit this year than he had in the past. When in the past, he was he was content to be running nicely in the first third of the race, but I didn't feel the real grit in him, you know. So when I look at that, like Je- Jesse has grit. Jesse Holmes this year, he really has grit. Like he he knows. I forgot who told that to me, you know, many years ago. He, he Stamasa said, "If you haven't won a Ditterrad by your sixth or seventh try, you 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 never will because." you get used to losing, so to speak. And there seems to be a certain truth in that. At some point, you really need to want to turn that page and put it all on the line. And there you can read a lot in the, of the mindsets when you watch those, pre, those interviews, the pre-race interviews, or even the interviews now, who is really determined. You know, and um, there's definitely a few people who who are driving very nice teams, but I don't quite sense that determination. Richie Deal, he's hungry. You know, Richie Richie Richie's hungry. Jesse's hungry. You know, Kelly seems surprisingly hungry. You know, Miller, you can never count her out. I mean, she is tough, and she oh boy, is she competitive. Um, so you know. Matt Hall knows how to win. He, you know, he has won a quest. Um, I don't know much about his dog team, you know, age, experience, and and and, and anything. Um, you know, personally, Wade Mass, yeah, 14th place, five o'clock. He 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 is not that far off the pace. Five hours from, from Ryan Reddington. So. Looking at past races, if you ask me today, I see Wade ahead of Ryan um, by no, but I could right. be wrong. You know, yeah. Ryan has more of a tendency to to not finish, to be handed back throughout the standings. Not, not, I didn't want to say not finish, but but um, be handed back in the standings. Um, Will it happen to him again? I don't know. I I sure hope not for him. But you know, looking looking at the past, the potential is there. So, yeah, yeah, he's had a a pretty you know out in front early kind of guy. Go ahead, Brennan. Yeah, so you know we're just kind of talking about strategy. So we've got we've got the front of the pack is getting into McGrath. We've got 
one of the hottest days coming up. I mean, does it not make all the sense in the world for all these people to just stop in McGrath and take their 24 right now? Or do you think they're going to push through? So McGrath is too early. So let's say if, so let's say if you, if you're on, on, on the way to um, McGrath right now and you want to shut it down now at eight o'clock, that's not necessarily the best time to shut it down again. So you're much better off to push more into Takatna or even potentially into Ofa. So let's say if you push into Takatna and you get to Takatna at 10 o'clock at night with your starting time differential, you can, you can leave at midnight. It's, even that is not quite ideal then I would push even further to Ofa and try to get to Ofa, let's say at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, which would get me leaving at three o'clock in the morning, which then if I would do a nice long eight hour run till 11 in the morning, I'm back on schedule on the way to Aditarov. Okay. So shutting it down in my grass for the 24, I wouldn't see beneficial at all. Okay. Pushing it into Ofa, if I have a dog team for it to do that long run, I, I think it's a given that Jesse and Brent will both go to Ofa. Time will tell, will they do that 24 there or will they not? But technically, it sets them up on a beautiful schedule both. The ones who started in McGrath, that's a long haul to go to Ofa. Possible, yeah, but Takotna is already a long run, but Ofa is a really long run. Like in 08, I couldn't... Wait, you say, wait, 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 hold on. You said those that started in McGrath going to Ofa is a long run? No, no, you sorry. mean if they started in Nikolai, right? Nikolai, yeah, yeah sorry, yeah, yeah, Nikolai. Those starting in Nikolai, to make it to Takotna is easy. To make it to Ofa, that's a real hard, you know, that could very, that could be a long run, you know. If it takes you six to McGrath and then another two and a half and two and a half, that's an 11 hour run. You know, not everybody has trained for that. Not everybody is ready to that. So I can see quite a few of those who, who stopped in Nikolai to run to Takatna, but not making it to Ofa. And then once again, that is exactly that little bit of a distance, which Brent and Jesse have created themselves um, with being kind of on the same schedule, but being one checkpoint ahead in Ofa. That's a pretty like impressive that like I, that they created that distance. It's not very obvious to me, at least, how they did that. They just kind of attacked like three extra miles onto this run and four onto that run, and next thing you know, they have this like little nice little gap with all the chasing pack. Um, yeah, that's gonna be so. A lot of these guys leaving Nikolai probably make a one long run to Takatna and take their 24 you know you're going to see at least some of them do that and oh, yeah. and then maybe you might see some of them stop in Takatna for of uh, three or four or stop in Takatna and then maybe they're going to go to Iditarod but that'd be kind of bold with given the forecast and given everything so I don't know yeah it's, it's I like that like the McGrath Takatna over you got McGrath to Takatna's what, like 20, 30 miles? Uh, was it 
2018 miles it says um and then Takatna to Ofer is 23 miles right so these you have flexibility here but yeah of course going to Nikolai to Ofer would be pretty great like might be too much you know uh to be able to build your back team back up and uh renovate their energy you know in only 24 hours right um so, Absolutely. That's not quite even the need for it. One thing I personally even liked about Takatna, it's one of those checkpoints. You can actually afford yourself to leave with the questionable dog because you can drop it 20, 20 miles later. Yes. So I, I always really enjoyed that about 24ing in Takatna. A, hot water and all of that is, 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 just, is just great. And plus, I mean, their burgers and their, their food at all, for me, was always like, Takotna is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hey, I, I had to plan to, to not stop there. But Takotna is a good place to, to pull over. And it sets you also up nicely to go to Aditarat. You know, you, you pass over, you camp out, and then you nicely make it to Aditarat. It's, it's a good place to be. Um, you know, that being said, over those two hours, Two and a half hours is a nice little cushion to have. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see. What I also did is I looked at the number of runs people have done, which is pretty mm -hmm. interesting. Nick Petit only has done four runs to Nikolai. Dan Caduce has, has run seven runs to Nikolai. That's a big difference. So wow. Dan Caduce never really ran more than six hours to this point. He has actually done a lot of five-hour runs. But then when you look at his spacing of run rest time, it's so nicely even. You know, Nick has, I mean, Nick has, done, even in the past, done some oddball schedules, and he he's doing it once again. Sometimes they work for him beautifully, other, other times they don't. But he has done only four runs to Nikolai, where then Ryan Redding has done five. Brent has done six to his camping spot. Kelly Mixner did six. Jesse Holmes did six. So it's pretty interesting to, to just look at that in itself, how different the different mushers manage their teams. When you when you look back to the way old quest we talked about, the 2011 quest, um, Dallas Evie, lots of short runs, lots of short rests at the time, and right at the end, he won it. You know, he displaced me to second. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's all condition based that these old time strategies like Dan runs, if he's hungry enough, you know, I would even say Jesse runs, Pete Kaiser runs, they can lead to very good success, you know, where an unorthodox schedule like Nick Petit for runs to, to Nikolai, now 24 in Nikolai, the odds are stacked a little bit against him that that's going to work. Yes, given the forecast too, and um, yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at looking at how many runs they've done, and and yeah, I mean, there's different styles. There's a lot of right ways to be like good at this. You know, there's the longer runs, maybe slightly longer rests, and then you got the the you know Dan Cadu style CV of the five hour runs, three hour rests, or four hour rests. Um, and and that's something I wanted to talk about is when you're resting your dogs. And this, I'm, I've always been kind of curious. I feel like I never have like my thing figured out 
you know, my exact checkpoint routine, but like, you know, how quickly are you, by the time you decide I'm camping at a, let's say at a checkpoint, um, are you going from the, you've stopped, you've parked to the dogs are sleeping and are you always like, do you, you should probably switch up, but are you feeding them before they go to sleep after they go to sleep? Both, you know, like, cause it would not like taking a four hour rest. It's not just as simple as like you pressed off and now they're resting four hours. Like, is it noisy around them? Are they like tired or are they just like kind of rolling around and hanging out? You know, you if you can get your dogs fed and bedded down in seven minutes and, and versus someone else, you know, and you only have 10 dogs, right. You can get them rested quicker, right. That's another advantage to having a smaller team you can take care of them and then get them their rest faster. But yeah, like talk about like strategies into making the maximizing the efficiency of some of these three two, three, four, five hour rest that these guys are giving their dogs. So back in the day, I had my handler stop watching with every move I did. How many times I would walk to the front of the team, how many, in, in what order I would do what and to what overall time that would lead me. That being said, there is no fixed set. It really depends on do you have water available? Do you not? Do you have to melt snow or not? So when I used to camp out, the very, very, very first thing I would do was get my cooker going. I wouldn't even go to the front of my team. I literally would stop, put my hook in, get my cooker going, because that was going to be the slowest determining factor of when I can feed them, especially if I had to melt snow and didn't even carry any water with me. If I would go, let's say, to a checkpoint like Nikolai, where I know I have warm water, of course, my routine would be a lot different one. You know, I would, because I know that feeding my dogs as such is going to be a fast process. So there, after planting my hooks, if I had a volunteer holding my team, I would actually already take the booties off on my way up front and shove them all in my pockets, not on the ground, they have to pick him up again. I would shove every single boot, every booty I could. I had a little bag made where I shoved all the booties in. I already had my massage oils with me. So before I would even come into Nikolai, I would have gotten my massage oils into certain pockets, always the same pockets. So I wouldn't even have to think about where they're at. But they would already be pre-warmed. My Zalox, my algebra would be warm. I would already have two wrist wraps on me. So in Nikolai, in go my hooks. On my way, when I walk up front, my booties go off in my pockets, so I don't have to pick them up again. I do a quick exam on their, on their wrists and their shoulders, and the slightest thing I would find, I would already slap a quick wrist wrap on. I go to the front of the team. By the time I'm in the front, put in the front hook, that's when the poor volunteer can finally leave my team alone. If the straw was nicely up, to up front, which I had hoped for, I would cut the bale open. On the way back, I would distribute all the straw. So with one walk up and down, they were basically massaged, 
their booties were off, and the straw was down. That was 10 minutes at most. Wow. Then in Nikolai, knowing I get warm water, I would get into making the dog food. Personally, I always said, if it took me more than 45 minutes to have a massage bedded down and me be in the sleeping bag, I fucked up. 40 was my goal. 35 was doable when I had a small team, like 10, 11 dogs. But anything above 45 minutes, to me personally, I found a detriment. I didn't snack much on the trail, most definitely not close to a checkpoint. So for me, it was always a thing, big meal within half an hour. And like a real big meal. That then I never wanted to pull the hook earlier than two and a half hours after they were done eating. So if I would have the meal in them after three, after 30 minutes, theoretically, I was like, I sh I, digestion wise, I, I can get away with pulling the hook after two and a half hours. Personally, at the time, I try to not give them less than four, four and a half. You know, when you look now, that number seemed to have gone down to three and a half. There's quite a few three and a half hour rests now, which back in my day, I hadn't quite mastered those then, you know. I never really wanted to have them run with a lot of water in their belly, so to speak. Because, you know, after when you watch them, after two and a half, three hours, a lot of the dogs get up and piss. And personally, that's when I pulled the hook. When I missed that spot and they all curled back down, then they were actually sometimes harder to get going after like at six. Then when you get that hmm. spot nicely, they're all getting up, they're all taking off their blankets, they're all going for a pee. Oh, cool. Now you're getting some booties on and guess what? We're leaving. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so the problem in the checkpoints, and that's why Brent does what he does, there come those pesky Iditarod insider guys want to talk to you and those Sebastian <laughs> and those Sean's and those Bruce Lee's and next thing you know, there's 15 minutes gone down the drain. Or in Nikolai, it's a hell of a walk to to the school. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw a little video of Nick in a sled today, you know. So Nikolai was one of those where I was like, man, is it even worth my time to go to the school? Or am I not just better off curling up next to my dogs? Where in Takatna, I usually would park right behind the checkpoint building and I could almost go out in slippers. You know, so that was also a determining factor for me where I would rest and how long and what. Because basically every walk counts. Everything counts. Like how, how much effort do you have to put in into feeding and maintaining your dogs? I love Nikolai. But boy, that was a walk to the school, you know. Um, camping out, you know, especially, let's say, if like, I didn't watch Brand's video in Nikolai, but boy, if you go into Nikolai and you even grab the warm water and put it in the garbage bag in your cooler, well, then when you pull over to camp, you're styling. You still have that warm water and you camp out and you avoid the insider guys. 
That being said, I saw the insider guys talking to them today, so they they they, <laughs> they still got they it. Almost, they almost avoided them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not only the insider guys. You know, when you're in a village, you want to talk to the locals. You know, you have friendships. Of course, I would have wanted to talk to Mali. You know, of course, I would would have wanted to talk to Phil Rankel and so on. So that's always that catch twenty two. You want to race, but you want to socialize. That's why I personally always tell Mashas, enjoy your first races where you have time to talk to people, where you're six, seven hours in checkpoint and you can socialize, you can meet people, you can, you, you know, it's great. I, I love that part about it. That's actually what I wanted to do when I wanted to run the race one more time in 2017. It was like, oh, cool, I can take time and gap to people and not just three and a half, four hours and I got to be going. Yeah, I definitely get caught in that trap. And I, you know, I always, I wasn't necessarily like super dead set on trying to be competitive, but I just remember on the first race, like being so stoked to be at a checkpoint and be like, oh yeah, there's that musher that I know. And oh, what are they doing over there? It looks like, oh, he's taking the booties off and I haven't taken the booties off yet. And oh, he's doing this kind of massage. I should try that, you know, and you just like, are it, you get way more dialed in alone personally for me dialed in when you're just alone with your dogs and you have no distractions and nothing else to think about except for how do I take care of these guys get them some food get some me some food and and uh but yeah I mean there's also something to be said for like Wade he did you see that interview and he was like I love checkpoints I prefer checkpoints there's everything's more efficient the water's right there the straw's right there the food's right there I'm like, well, that's actually, I guess, a good point because you do burn like five, ten minutes loading up the straw under the thing and getting ready to go camp. I mean, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. And it, there is no one size fits all. I mean, there's right. 33, 33 different ways to run the race and there is no good or bad. It's what matches your personality and your training the most. If If, if you're somebody who is not good at camping, well, yeah, the, the, the checkpoints are much more efficient. If you're somebody like Brent, I think, who camps most of his life, um, you know, for him, a checkpoint is more inefficient. Um, there, there is no good or bad or right or wrong. Every musher is different. You know, so why we have been gabbing here, um, Ryan yeah. Reddington and, and um, Jesse Holmes, both both gone through Takatna. So I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I expect Ryan to pull over in, in um, uh, both pulls through McGrath. I expect Ryan to stop at Takotna. I think Jesse will go to to um, Ofa. What, what do you guys think? I think you uh, Jesse and Brent are going to Ofer based because they that would put them at like a sixty something mile run, which is a good distance. And uh, and yeah, you know, Red, I, I don't think. I mean, if Ryan goes to Ofer, I think that would not be the move for him personally. Um, but yeah, what, I mean, do you those... think about what do you think about Kelly and Richie? Oh my God, I'm so stoked for Kelly. Uh, he, he uh, I, I've gotten to talk to him a few times. Um, yeah, I mean, damn, Richie's Richie's team knows they're getting close to McGrath. He's going nine and a half miles an hour. Uh, Brent's going nine point two. That's, that's some decent speeds. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Kelly said in that interview, he was said uh, he had some dogs like a little sore from that moguls to Nikolai, and um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like he's setting himself up nicely, and uh, 
you know, he's right there in that chase back. I, I, I think uh, I'd give Richie a little bit of an edge just because, um, you know, he's been running this race every year and he's, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's his time to, to kind of have a, even more of a breakthrough than he already has. I think he finished top 10 last year. So, um, yeah. Miller yeah. must be a little Miller must be a little disheartened. She has been passed on the fly by Matt Fehler and Pete Kaiser both. You know, yeah. That's, that's always a thing when you personally I, I never I was never worried when when somebody would pass me, let's say, in the checkpoint and leave earlier than me. But if I would get passed on the trail, that was always a sure sign of like, oh crap, you know. Yeah. So Miller seems to be definitely at that point right now where you know, she left ahead of him, and, and they're both well ahead by now. Yeah, you know, that's the interesting, you know, that you've observed that. Mila is, um, she's, she's the last three years, including this one, puts together kind of like like a ragtag team of dogs. And it's, it's you know, she's had two incredible Iditarods. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, I wonder if that plays a factor when you have, you know, two dogs from this kennel and three dogs from that kennel and, board auction that she has that are hers um you know you got quite a uh, that's just leaves for a lot of room for a lot of variables and um yeah she seemed a little flustered in the interview and you know hopefully she gets them 24 maybe soon and and gets that speed back Aaron Peck you know 13 dogs, he has run very small teams for a number of years. I mean, his 10th place finish last year with that super small team was pretty amazing. So he must be stoked to leaving leaving Nikolai with 13. Yeah, um, and he, he I remember he's, him men mentioning he's kind of got a young team this year uh, and he split them up for the quest, right? You were, I mean, you were, you've been, I, I, did, I was out of town for the quest, but he had two teams, I think, right, in, in that and had split them down kind of down the middle so uh what do you know yeah what do you know about his team from that race well i mean he the, he used that quest 300 a uh, quest 450 as a training run so did miller Possel. Mm -hmm. you know miller took some dogs he wanted to evaluate um as you said aaron divided his dogs between Mela. Mela actually had his more experienced dogs and he was driving the younger ones. I mean, you couldn't set yourself up much better than doing a 450 at the time when he did. Mm -hmm. And Willoughby, Mela, she's a, like, like a super good dog driver and, and also her dog hair is like top notch. So I think that shows in Aaron's team right now that he has a large group of dogs which had finished that Quest 450. And he didn't do anything crazy or stupid in that Quest 450. You know, they, they maintained the dogs nicely. Um, so I think it's paying dividends for him right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, Jesse Royer, I'm, I, I don't know. You know, she, she, did she run a, the Quest, one of the Quests as well? No, she did not. No, um, she didn't. Okay. She did the pedigree, yeah. and she did some of the lower 48 races. No, she didn't do the pedigree neither. No, no, she didn't do the pedigree oh. neither. Um, the Idaho Sled Dog Challenge, maybe? That was one, one of those down there, yeah. Yeah. 
she said she has a young team. Um, that being said, you can never really count out Jesse of much neither. Will it be enough to win, to get into Nikolai at 1.30 in the afternoon? Probably not, you know, but uh, knowing Jesse, she will probably climb up in the ranks towards the race um, quite a bit. You know, that being said, one big storm, I mean, look at 2014, um, where the dice were completely rolled new when the teams were even leaving White Mountain. You know, you just never know. There's still a lot of possibilities. A lot of race, a lot of race left. And then, uh, a lot of you, possibilities, know, you, know. you know, Riley Dyke, I'm, he's been trying to kind of get a competitive race together the last couple tries. Um, and, you know, just had... Obviously, the I did right always throws a wrench in your plans. Um, so it's good to see him kind of near the front. He's in the front half of the race. And Christian Turner, the coming out of Australia, just hopping on the runners, basically. And, he, you know, he's got some real quality experience having two really impressive I did right finishes in 2014 and 15. And now he's uh running uh, by my understanding a fairly young team but a very well-trained team this year that ran a bunch of the mid-distance races and it looks like he's starting off on the right foot oh absolutely yeah absolutely i mean yeah le- leaving nikolai at five in the afternoon it's, it's textbooks i mean he, he you know he, he got in there right in time at 12 30 but yeah, I mean that whole middle group there right now, Riley, um, Wade, Christian, they're all on the textbook schedule, so to speak. And then, you know, looking at the back of the pack, you know, not necessarily worrying about, you know, who where they're finishing. I mean, what uh Ramey said that he Ramey Smith, he said he's like ran at dogs like a thousand miles in training, which is like pretty slow my very low mileage for this day and age. Uh, and he's, you can see he's kind of building up his team. He's going short, you know, shorter runs and, and taking it kind of slow and seeing how they develop through the race and kind of doing his Iditarod training in the first third of the Iditarod, doing a lot of it and, and seeing how they develop. And, um, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Bridget Watkins. I don't know. And, 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 uh, Eric Kelly, um, do you, do you know anything about those guys? No, um, very little too. I mean, they they are what I would call in the adventure stage. You know, for right. them, this is this is being part of the race, winning not an equation, um, money probably not an equation in the sense of that they're counting on prize money. For, for them, it's about being 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 part of it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole that whole group, which I would say not being in Nikolai right now. Mine is Remy. I mean, Remy is still on the way to Nikolai, but but the whole rest of that group. Um, I'm actually surprised to see Deke Nachtgeborn to see him. Yeah, same I here. Would have, I would have more seen Deke with Wade and that group. Yep. Um, yeah. Bailey and Jed, Jed, Joanna, Jago. They are all kind of where I expected them to be. I am a little worried about, you know, Greg Vitello being so far behind. Kind yeah, of I was thinking that. It's, and ten and a half not, hour rest in rainy. Yeah, you know. How, uh, ten and a half hours? 
he rested 10, I think, you know, I, I don't want to say anything wrong, but I, I think he rested 10 and a half hours in Rainy, you know, which you, you, you don't really do yourself any favors with things like that in such a fast-paced race. If you're in a group of mushers, that's one thing, but boy, if you're there that by yourself, you know, 11 hours, 10.57, you know, so and I'm he's like, not doing any papers back there. So it's, it's kind of Gerhard and him, they're leapfrogging a bit. They're together back there. So they better stick together. Yeah, and, you know, that's something that you see, uh, you saw like in the Willow this year where, you know, you got a couple mushers that are at the back of the pack and then one of them scratches and now the one musher it's just yeah. by himself. And then that that's a, something that if you don't maintain that competitiveness in the Iditarod, not necessarily competitive in the sense of trying to win, but just to stay kind of with the race is a uh, pace. And, you know, you got all these volunteers sitting around at the checkpoints, you know, taking, they're all sleep deprived and ready to go home and or on to the next checkpoint. Um, so they're not, they don't like sitting around and waiting 18 hours for the last two mushers to show up. Uh, and so, you know, I really, Gerhardt, you know, he had a tough end of his race last year. You know, I've been there. Um, there's a couple other mushers in here. I think uh, Katie Jo Dieter, who looks like she's doing great. Um, she, I guess she had a, a, a couple of hiccups along the way, but it doesn't seem to have slowed her down. And But yeah, really, you know, you hope that Gerhardt can keep up kind of with the group Um given the the tough ending to his year last year he's got to really prioritize kind of catching up uh and yeah, of yeah. course greg as well greg vitello jason so, Mackey, i'm surprised to see him back there too uh yeah you know i was wondering he, he's i was like I, I feel like you know he ran the connect 200 i think and he was kind of chilling on that race and using it as a training run and i was curious to see if that's kind of how he would run i did or i or if he was going to make some moves, but I, I mean, was, he did rebuild his kennel, you know, and maybe this is like the start of something the kind of start of phase two of his career. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I was reading something from their kennel that said exactly that, that this is more of like a kind of enjoying this. This is kind of in memory of Lance, um, but it's not going to be like a competitive run for him. That's kind of at least what the post kind of made it sound like to me. Um, Sebastian, I wanted to ask you kind of on that note, we were just kind of talking about as a race judge, can you talk about what goes into the decision to like kind of ask someone to scratch or, you know, force them or just can you give us a little more behind the scenes of what that what that's like? Well, there we are treading dangerous water. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of tension, uh, Brennan, and but you know, some people have Mark, been with... Mark Norman might not be a happy camper, depending on what I say. Oh, okay. <laughs> I understand. Right. Well, I mean... So, I mean, I mean, the the main thing when it comes down to that is actually the opposite. As a race judge, our goal is to facilitate people to finish. So I see my job out there as almost more being a mentor than a race judge. So these teams in, in the back, often they're obviously struggling or unfamiliar and need a bit of advice, need a bit, a bit of reassurance. And um, we had it here in the, in the, in, in the uh, 
quest for 50. Um, Connor McMahon, the last team, you know, we, we did what's called a wellness check on him. I took the snow machine and drove out to see him. Had some airline kennels with me, so I was ready to pluck him off the trail if needed. And when talking to him, I realized the dogs are fine. He is a problem. And that's when my approach switched to let's facilitate that he finishes. Not in the sense of aiding and giving help. No, that's not allowed and that's not the part. But basically walking him to and telling him what's going on and why it's happening, what's is happening. And um, so I did a lot of the same thing. In general, we are encouraging the back of the pack to finish. Sometimes they have to make a little bit of fire underneath their butt and say, like Gerhard now, uh, not uh, um, 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 Greg Vitello. Uh, Greg, it's like, Greg, resting 11 isn't an option. If you want to finish, you need to up the ante a little bit here and rest seven. You know, run six, rest seven, rest an hour longer. But, you know, if if you keep on running four or five and resting 11, this is not going to work. You're, you're, you're too far behind. So you do things like that, you know, and then you might even talk to somebody about efficiency and say, like, way back in the day, John Baker actually came to me once and said, Sebastian, how many times did you walk to the front of your team? And I was like, what the fuck do I know? What the fuck do I care? And he was like, oh, you need to care. You know, so, and that's it. You you might have to walk these people through routines and, and get them to finish. Now, that all switches when you have a case like Hugh Neff last year. Now I'm getting in real dangerous waters here. <laughs> hey, um, hey, hot takes. We like hot takes, okay? So we appreciate takes. that. <laughs> I already saw Hugh's team not eating very well in Rainy Pass last year. And at the time, you know, I, I talked to Hugh. Um, him and me go back a long ways of running both races. And I talked to him. I was like, hey, Hugh, they're not eating all that well. And he was rather nonchalant about it, you know. And at that point, okay, I backed off. I was like, you know, okay, I, he hopefully got the gist. You know, you got to be you got to be very diplomatic, so to speak. You know, um, I had hoped that me saying that made him aware that we are watching. You know, then I saw his team in McGrath again, and I could see a change in appearance in dogs. You know, you can see dogs getting stronger. You can see dogs losing weight. Well, that team was losing weight. And obviously, I'm not the only race judge out there. You know, there are, there are many other race judges. And we were all starting to see the same thing. That's why the decision, which was very unpleasant and created a lot of controversy, was done in Ruby. Well, Mark Nordman is a poor guy who takes a brunt for all of that. But that was not a single Mark Nordman, random, oh, I'm going to pull the hell you out of the race now. No, that had nothing to do. As race judges talk amongst each other, we relay to Mark. Mark calls us, you know, and says, hey, what did you see there? What did you see here? 
that was a very joint decision by many of us judges together, seeing the the progression of the team, that it that the team, it was still running fine, but the vets have a lot to say with that too. But when the body weights start going down and the dogs are not eating well, and you're that early in the race, after all, just arriving at the Yukon River is early in the race, with a musher who has had dog incidents before, who has been shut down in races before, that's when the very unpleasant choice was made to make that decision. Which, if you make that with a front runner like you, oh boy, what the, the fans, oh my God, fans come from Fanatic, what turned that loose? The fans who sit in Ohio or God knows where on their computer seem to know more than our race judges do. <laughs> where, you know, as a race judge, I'm often then, why the hell am I even out here? Why don't we leave the decision for the fans who know it all so well, you know? So it's a very judgy subject and a very unpleasant subject, you know? And you have mushers when you give them the talk like I was given the talk in 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 the ninety nine quest by by Joe May. I was upset, but I realized, well, the guy knows more than I do. I I better listen to him, you know. Or then you have other mushers when you give him the talk, and the out. I was the one scratching Lance in the two thousand thirteen quest. Mm. So in Dawson, when Lance scratched, he saw me just walk up to him, and. Lance was like, Sebastian, you're here to give me some paperwork, aren't you? <laughs> you know, and right there, he knew, you know, so with Lance, there wasn't even the need for a, he was, I think he was down to seven dogs or eight dogs in Dawson. There wasn't even a need for a discussion, you know, Lance himself, he saw what he needed to see and did the decision he had to do. But those are the times when as a race judge, yeah, the, the unpleasant moments happen. 95% of the time, the job is different. The job is facilitating and helping people to finish. You know, if you have a 20, I don't know how many times finisher should know better. People who, who are in the first or second race, competitiveness is usually not the issue or being over competitive. It's more about um, yeah, making sure they finish and they get to reach their goal, their dream, especially when the going gets tough. Because how tough it goes, I remember reading books and stories and race annuals and Ken Anderson used, used to write really great race updates and I, re I read them all. But Sean, as you know, they only get meaning once you have been out there. You know, for you too, you must feel the same thing now that things you read before, now that you ran the race, they have a lot more meaning. Yeah, man, I'm, I mean, uh, that is, I'm just really glad that you've talked about what you've talked about. You know, uh, I think that you, uh, the Iditarod is always going to have critics that, you know, speaking of people that sit in Ohio, you know, 
that the, they haven't come and seen these sled dogs and seen how happy they are. And, you know, the dogs that get left home, those are the ones we feel bad for, not the ones that get to go and do this race. And, and when people um, are, you know, not doing right by the dogs, uh, you know, there's some, there's actions that get taken, you know, and uh, like um, no longer being able to continue in the race. Like you see with Lance in 2013, the quest or uh, Hugh a uh, year or two ago. And, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult. And it's not like Hugh, Hugh could maybe come back and if he has a little bit of remorse or, you know, proves, I don't know what that situation is, but I would think that if, you know, maybe maybe he could take some fault, there could be a potential for, you know, a comeback story there. But yeah, I mean, it, there's you can't see a pattern of, you know, issues with your dog care continue over and over. Right? And it's one people miss things. You make mistakes. You know, you maybe but you can't have it happen over and over again right we're want to th this is all about the dogs here right and uh and yeah of course you want to get people to complete their dreams get out there on the Iditarod trail and finish the damn race you know I've got a really close friend who's been you know got withdrawn from the race and you know it's I've scratched it sucks uh and that was that was really hard for me and I still really I'm never gonna get over that you know um and so yeah you know i feel for jen labar you know that that was a gnarly wipeout and uh you know i think the only time ever mitch cv scratched it was for a similar reason his knife yeah when yeah he with a knife yeah no but we are everybody signing up you do know that a certain percentage of mothers doesn't make it and you got to be in acceptance of that, you know, I mean, I scratched, scratched my first quest and life went on, you know, um, the, the possibility is there. And that's why, once again, the ultimate goal as a race judge is to get the people to the finishing line. It ends when it's not done right by the dogs. And unfortunately, sometimes there seem to be very rare times there seem to be disagreements about that assessments like last year between Hugh Neff and the vets and Northman and us as race judges, you know, and those are the cases. Um, in the old days, prior social media, um, when I got that talk in 99, nothing blew up in the media or anything. No damage was done to the race or Masha or sponsors. Those things stayed behind closed doors where, in my opinion, they belong. That is the danger of social media, that if that matter is disgruntled and then takes to social media, as you did, mm -hmm. he does a lot of damage to himself and the race. And that has made the whole race judging I mean, I can't even believe there is a Facebook page out there, um, get rid of Mark Norton. I mean, if these people would know the knowledge the guy has, the connection he has, the, the, de the devotion he has to the race and to the mushers to get them to the finishing line, um, I, I, I can't even fathom it. 
where what has what's happening here in this world all of a sudden where the referees are the bad people. Even in a case like UNEP, which has a set track record of dog issues, and if the referee safeguards the dogs and yet he's being made out as a bad guy, I just don't get it. Has Mark done a mistake in his career or two? Oh, of course, like anybody else. But the same should apply to him than to the mushers and anybody else. You know, somebody in the end has to have, has to make the ultimate decision. And in this case, it happens to be him. You know, and um, to me, that's, I have to admit that was actually even part of why I didn't want to be a judge this year. Where I was like, this, I, why would I do it if it's not fun? It's a lot of hard work. We don't sleep much out there neither. And then to have that amount of negativity, well, I can go snow machining on my own. You know, I can, I can, I'm going up to the Percy to Wolf tomorrow just to take some pictures, you know. And I think the whole, the whole community has to look at that. What does the criticism do to the whole mushing community? We all want the same thing, you know, and we all want but the dogs to be has, taken. But what has happened with social media? Like, wh what is that amount of negativity? As great as social media is, to get updates, pictures, live videos, and so on. I also think it has a certain detriment for the races because mm -hmm. all of a sudden, everything is out open in the public, which is not even the case in the family. All of a sudden, the mushers are in a 10-day reality TV show without even signing up for it. Because right. everything is out in the open. And, you know, me being doing media a lot of times too, I even have a problem with that. And I, I think it's a very, you got to be really careful when you're out there. What do you show and what do you not? Because like anything else in the life, not everything should be for public consumption. Hmm. You know, does it mean we're hiding things? No, but it's, it's, yeah, not, not all family life belongs to the neighbors. So with this mushing community being supposed to be the Ajitawat family, how do we treat each other? And especially, how do we treat each other in the difficult times, in the UNEF times? How do we treat each other? Nobody is going to make these calls lightly. You know, a Mark Nordman, myself or Kevin Ramsey or whoever, we don't get a pleasure in sending somebody home. Oh, hell no. Absolutely not. Why, why the hell would we? You know, same thing with the Masha way in the back of the pack where all of a sudden you're too far behind. It would be disheartening sending that person home. But at some times, certain situations, you're running out of options. You know, so it's a, that, that whole thing is a pretty touchy subject. It, it, yeah. it really is. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you talking about it you know it, it's uh tough for me to talk about i'm it, i don't understand the whole picture so, and i think that you know i definitely understand the picture a lot better than 
whoever's commenting, you know, on Facebook or whatever, but, but I still don't fully grasp it. I don't really truly know, you know, what you, those tough, difficult conversations the judges are having. And, you know, I've, I've had, I've had some of those difficult conversations uh, in my couple of races and, and I know, and I want to be respectful of your time here. And I just yep. think I'm going to ask you one more question. And, um, and I think I gotta, I gotta ask, I have a, I have a good way right, to wrap fine. this up. I got a good wrap right. way, but go ahead with your question. But like when it comes like with the Iditarod, we have like a, a lowest amount of uh, mushers in the race this year, you know, what can we do uh, for the race? You know, like how, how are we going to get it um, to be continuing on this legacy of, sled dogs and mushing in Alaska and something that's been going on for thousands of years. And this event's a celebration of it and of the trail and of the dogs and uh, that we all, and the love that we all have for them, you know, what, you know, I hope that me and Brennan just being able to talk to you is like one thing that we can do to just maybe part of the next generation, you know, seeing a lot of these younger mushers in the race this year, it's awesome to see, but you know, we want we want this awesome event to continue to to happen for decades to come and you know what do you think people can do to make that to help do their part you know Ooh, the, this could be a, a whole section in its own <laughs> yeah i know another, another recording on this one <laughs> all right another hour we're going three hours now before you called i thought oh, this is going to be a quick 15 minute interview and i'm on my way to <laughs> Because I still have to go to Whitehorse here tonight to head up to the first tomorrow morning. But no, this is fascinating, interesting. This is not an isolated Iditarod farm. Uh, say that again? The low starting numbers is not an isolated Iditarod problem. It's not an isolated Yukon Crest problem neither. Um, most races have that situation right now. We've had the same talk this year after the Wyoming stage race. The silver sled race in the Yukon, a, a, a short hundred miler with a fun over with a super fun overnight camping is not happening this year. Percy the Wolf has super low participants. We wanted to do a little race here um, last week, the Granger Grind, we couldn't even find five mushers. So I think for one, we have to look away from the organization and once again, stop the bashing of all oh, the old boys club and so-and-so needs to leave and this one needs to leave. Um, it's a bigger problem. And I think the problem lies in demographics and society. For every four mushers retiring, one new kennel starts up. Well, why is that? And what can be done to combat that should be the real question. Because the the, the lowering numbers in mushers are all across the board. In recreational races, the Aditarod, the mother of it all, the stage race, even some sprint races. Sprint races as such are easier for people to train and maintain in real life. 
we we had those talks with the pedigree stage stop when that went from an Aditarod qualifier to one or two campouts to 50 mile runs to now be a multiple day sprint race. But Buddy Streeper said the other year, Sebastian, at least I can bring my kids to the hockey game now and at least I can have a real Christmas. This long distance racing, as you and I know all too well, it's all consuming, all money, all resources, all family, all everything. Who can do that these days financially? You know, when I showed up in the Yukon, property was so much cheaper. I could still find a property to keep a dog team without annoying my neighbors. Now here in the Yukon, somebody moving up here like Connor McMahon, he can't buy a property. Average price six hundred fifty thousand. How? And that's not even a rural residential property you need to find. How are you going to pull that off? So we are in a real demographic shift where, when the real old guard, sorry Jeff, so, sorry Martin, but when the real old guard showed up, they they still had a much more of an ability to build a lifestyle, a dream. Now, just to get off the starting blocks is so much harder. And thank God they are the Jets and Martins. How many mushers have run because of thanks of them, who have been handlers, who have had their teams? But for them to establish and to start a kennel, find a property, and finance it, it's not near as easy as it used to be. So there is a real problem right there where in all honesty, I don't have an answer. None. I'm I'm seeing it, but I don't have an answer. But the same comes when it comes to the new demographic of mushers. The other day here, when, when the Granger grind didn't happen, and then once again, Facebook comments started happening all of a sudden it's like, well, you need to consult us earlier. We need to find out more about the purse. We, um, you, 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 you need to consult us more for the format and so on. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I used to see it as a privilege if there was a race and I was given the platform to run it. But to ask for this race to be centered around my needs would have not crossed my mind. And the younger generation, at least quite a few of them, see, seem to see that a whole lot different. And that in itself, I see as a difficulty. The rough and tough of what I used to enjoy about the long distance races, sleeping outside, being uncomfortable, having the whole thing be a grind. I think the whole society as such gets away from rough and tough. Whole society is getting softer. And um, so are we offering a product, product being the race, which is really becoming out of fashion? And those questions we have to ask ourselves. Clear is 
the financial ability to run these races is definitely getting lower lately. I got $39,000 for 10th place in 2008. Look what they're getting now. Look where inflation has been since then. So never mind getting to the starting line, finding a property. Add to that a whole different mindset of a lot of up and coming mushers. Boy, we are, we are, we are at a difficult road here right now. We are at a real difficult road here right now. If I have to consult mushers first, if the race is to their liking, that's going to get interesting. And we're talking about a little hundred mile race here. Jeez. You know, so honestly, I have a lot of question marks. I have absolutely no answers. So I hopefully I laid out what I'm seeing, but solutions, I, there's one solution I see. Stop publicly bad-mouthing race staff, race organizers, race judges, veterinarians. Behave like a family who gets along. That will help a little bit. But in the big picture, honestly, I don't know where this is headed. Um, you know, it's gone are the days of 2008 where we have to ask for a cap of 100 teams because there was discussion to Lance, me, and a whole bunch of us would camp out at headquarters so we could start up on the first day and get an early starting number. We would camp there for three days and drink beer. Well, <laughs> those, those days have gone by. <laughs> oh, man. To, to, have, to have been around you guys in that era, that, that would, be, would have been something to be a part of. Um, but, Sebastian, we can't thank you enough. You're knowledge is amazing the depth that you are able to provide when we ask you just like a basic question is through the roof and we can't thank you enough one the one last thing i wanted to do which is probably something that i should have brought up at the front of the podcast but uh sean was telling me about the story about how you guys met and i was wondering if before sean tells it if his side or whatever if you if you happen to remember meeting sean and what the circumstances were <laughs> oh boy! I don't I think don't. so. Yeah. <laughs> you see, I mean, well, how many problem, times... the, the thing is, where, where I first consciously met you, and you first consciously met me. So, um, where did I first consciously meet you? Honestly, I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I remember it uh, pretty vividly because I haven't met. How bad many... did I piss you off? What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> No, um, I was in Takatna down in one of those glorious burgers, and uh, I was talking with, gosh, I'm embarrassed, I can't remember her name, um, but she was running the Iditarod, and she and she uh, ended up not being able to finish, but uh, you sat down, and I was like, you know, you, you, have, you have a look to you, you know, I also have crazy hair, but I did just shower. <laughs> hey, you um, put product in your hair, what is that? <laughs> no, about, it's just man? wet, I shower. I was hoping you would, ago. like, try to, like... Give Sebastian uh, yeah, some we, we competition. Each other. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you were saying what you said earlier in the podcast, which was just you know, there's nothing like your first time on the trail and to enjoy it. And I was like stressing out about whatever was going on with my dogs, you know, that they weren't eating every last kibble, or you know, maybe there was you know some harness rub or whatever. And you're like, you're just like, you know, just enjoy. This is your first time. There'll never be another first time. 
And uh, and then I was like, oh, thanks, crazy guy. And then <laughs> and then I turned to my musher friend and she's like, oh, you don't know who that is? And I was like, no, I have no idea who this is. And you know, then she kind of said, oh, yeah, he won the Yukon quest and this is a race judge or whatever. And I was like, oh, OK, well, thank you. And then I learned after the race and then years to come, you know, I see you around a lot.